appreciate that so much. So I'm guessing you know in the evening of the 18th, the choir will be presenting a cantata, and so it has been a number of years since we have done that. We will, we will have one on the 18th in the evening service. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Acts chapter number 5. And we're going to begin in verse number 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man, men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand, to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. We're going to stop there and let's pray this morning. Father, I pray again for us that this would not be a time of noise to our ears, but of the sweet sound of your glorious, forgiving grace, that we would welcome it and receive it, that we would bask in it that we would praise you for it and that prompted by it, we would endeavor to extend similar forgiveness to others. Teach us and train us this day, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Turn first, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. In verse number 32, we're giving some time in our morning services to the subject matter of forgiveness, and of course forgiveness has both a vertical dimension to it, we are forgiven by God, and it has a horizontal dimension to it, we are instructed in the matter of forgiving each other. So we will, we will be on the receiving end, hopefully, of God's forgiveness. And we will be both on the receiving and the extending end on a human level. Any conversation that we have about forgiveness at a human level must be informed by forgiveness at a divine level first. All true biblical forgiveness is a reflection of what God did for us at Calvary. And so we're going to begin, we have begun, and we will spend several weeks focusing upon forgiveness as we have received it from the Lord. So Acts chapter 2, verse number 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, the resurrection. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. 
For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou upon my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this is the promise unto you and to your children and to afar, all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then jump ahead to Acts chapter 10. And I'm going to begin in verse number 36, Acts chapter 10, and verse number 36. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, verse number 39. I I read the wrong line there. Acts chapter 10, verse number 39. We are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick, which means living, and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And then head again to Acts chapter 13 and verse number 36. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up again, raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And then Acts chapter 26. <clears throat> Acts chapter 26 and verse number 16. <clears throat> Paul here is recounting his conversion testimony or portion of it. And the Lord said unto him, verse number 16, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen 
and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. But our primary text this morning will, if you want to turn back to it, be Acts chapter 5. I will read many other passages to you. It is not uncommon in circles like ours for the gospel message to be presented along these lines. Are you certain if you die today that you would go to heaven? But when the gospel was preached in the book of Acts, you notice that there is a common progression to the thinking. That there is the resurrection of Christ by God who would not tolerate his son to remain dead. There's the proclamation of the message which is this. Because he died you may receive the forgiveness of sins. In almost every one of those passages, and we could find it very close if we looked at all of them more closely, those who accepted that message received the Holy Spirit. Because that is the evidence of genuine conversion, is the reception of the Spirit. I mentioned last week, or two weeks ago, when we looked at the account of the men tearing the roof off of the building of the house to let the sick man down. That Jesus prioritized forgiveness by first speaking to the man about his sins and their forgiven situation. And as I've already mentioned, any interaction that you and I have with each other that involves genuine forgiveness is going to be, it must be, it cannot be any other way anchored in and a reflection of and with understanding of the fact that God has forgiven us. Now, God has not forgiven everybody, although he would forgive everybody. God forgives those who receive his forgiveness. But the death of Christ is adequate to save all that would come. So again, with reference to Acts chapter 5, I wish to develop the outline for the message out of that chapter. So let's begin, first of all, folks, not by talking about God's forgiveness, but by talking about our guilt. Peter begins by talking to the people about the guilt of our sin. Verse number 31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgive us of sins. I would not try to insult you this morning, but let's just begin with the basics. What are sins and why would they need to be forgiven? Well, a sin is an offense. If you are legally, if you are have a legal bent to your mind, a sin is a crime. 
A sin is a transgression. And forgiveness then is the release from that transgression. It is the release from the bondage and the penalty of that transgression. That is what we are talking about in its simplest form. To be guilty of an offense, sin. To be released from the guilt of that offense, forgiven. It is really hard for us, because we are sinful by nature, it is hard for us to really come to grips with the fact that we need to be forgiven. It is so hard for us to admit that we are wrong. It is our nature to be sinful. That is our nature. That is our default condition. Now the world would have us to believe that by default we are good. And that culture, racism, poverty, educational ignorance, we are forced to be bad. But the Bible position is that we were born bad. And that we have come out of the womb being bad. And in fact, the Bible likens human nature to a wild animal. And I don't know any or all of the reasons why God created wild animals, but He certainly uses them to illustrate unregenerated human nature. 2 Peter 2.12 But these as natural brute beasts... We are not by nature puppy dogs. We are by nature mountain lions. Jude 1.10, these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. This is what we are. This is how God describes us. David recognized his inherent sinfulness in his great confession in Psalm 51. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not, again, always the disclaimer, not that he claimed his birth was illegitimate, but that his nature is sinful. I was conceived as a sinner. And Romans 5.12 is abundantly clear that at the fall of Adam, Adam's sinfulness is transmitted to every human being by nature. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. When God describes us, he talks about us honestly, yet brutally. Isaiah 1, these are his covenant people. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it but wounds 
bruises, putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither mollified, with, neither bound up nor mollified with ointment. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue have muttered, have muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity, speak lies, conceive mischief, bring forth iniquity. That's God's description of his own people. Paul asked the question about us versus the Jews in Romans 3.9. What? What then? Are we better than they, Jews better than Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. What a description of the human voice box. An open casket. With their tongues they have used to seat the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And even when we have persuaded ourselves that we are on our absolute best behavior and are doing the best that we can and working to be the best possible version of ourselves that there is to be, God says, Isaiah 64, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. And yet, almost to a man, if we were pressed hard enough and in the right spot, our claim would be, but I'm not as bad as so and so. They're worse than me. The Bible begins by talking about our guilt. We are sinful. We are offenders. But that raises then this question. So what? And I don't mean that irreverently. So what? If my nature is to sin and sin is what I do, so what? I mean, seriously, folks, many of you, and we have been in the past, are pet owners. Do you really try to alter the nature of your pets or you just accept it as it is? A dog is a dog. A cat is a cat. A goldfish is a goldfish. An iguana is an iguana. The nature of the animal is the nature of the animal. And if you are the owner or the controller of that animal, you stipulate to the fact that that animal has a nature and you act accordingly. This has nothing to do with the service, but I had put in my outline several weeks ago, if my dog is a dog by nature, that's just the way it is. And yesterday our youngest daughter was telling us about her experience with her dog. Actually, it's her experience with her son. Three kids... They have a dog. He's a big dog. He is a cross between a St. Bernard and a poodle, a Bernadoodle. 
So he's built like, literally, he's built like a poodle until you get to his head, and then his head just looks disproportionately large to his body. But he's a good dog, and he loves the kids, and the kids love him, and his name is Hank. So our daughter is telling us that she is tending to the baby, and the dog, Hank, is in the backyard. And Hank is just barking and barking and barking. So she's got to take care of the baby. So finally she says to her six-year-old, who loves the dog, I mean, they are great buds. She said, Levi, go out in the backyard and yell at Hank. So he did. He opened the door said, Hank, you're an idiot. Close the door. Mission accomplished. Right? I laughed about that all day yesterday. Hank, you're an idiot. Nature's nature. Nature of a person is not the nature of a dog. So why do we need to be forgiven? Why is it that I can't just go, look, this is what I am. This is what I do. If I'm by nature sinful and I sin, who's going to be surprised? And by the way, folks, we should never be surprised when sinful people sin. Just like you should never be surprised when a dog wags its tail. And neither should you be surprised when your cat doesn't. Nature's nature. But you see, folks, we are created in the image of God. And the sinful nature of man is offensive to him. And he can't just look at us the way we would look at our pets and go, my dog is a dog and I've got to take that into account. I've got to, I've got to deal with it as if it's a dog. And again, it's very easy for us to think of sin primarily along this horizontal axis. I lie to you, you lie to me, I lie about you, You lie about me. I steal from you. You steal from me. But every time something like that happens, there is a third party brought into the transaction. For a dog to be a dog is not offensive to a cat. But for a man to be a sinner is very offensive to God. It is an assault upon his nature, his character, his will, and his attentions. And in fact, when God talks about human sins, he talks about them as if they are particularly odious, obnoxious, stinking, material things that pile up like a mound of rotting garbage. Genesis 15, 16, in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They haven't filled up the capacity of their sinfulness. Romans 2, 4, or despisest thou the richness of his forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up 
unto thyself wrath. That word treasure gives us the word thesaurus. A collection of random words. Synonyms and antonyms and homonyms. All piled up together. Treasure us up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The building up of our sins and the building up of God's wrath go hand in hand. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now again folks, and I realize that I am preaching to people who really are for the most part forgiven people, but let me talk to us briefly in our pre-conversion state. Very easy to look outside the walls of a church and to think that this is true of people, and it is. Right? This is, this is what has happened. This is what has always been happening in the world. It is what has been happening to every individual, every culture, every ethnicity, every tribe of people. That they have developed a way of living and a code of conduct and a code of morals And all the while, they are just piling up their sin that is going to be judged by God. It is all an offense to him. And should people think, and I realize that this is in many ways highly insensitive, but I just don't know a better illustration of it. Should anybody think, you know, I just don't feel bad about my sin. I mean, that old book, the Bible might condemn it as sin, but I don't feel bad about it. It doesn't bother me at all. Everybody else is doing it. I might as well do it too. I would just remind you folks that there is no amount of weight you can pile upon a corpse that will make the corpse uncomfortable. Corpses are dead. They don't feel. And unbelieving people are dead. They don't feel the weight of God's guilt either. Of course they feel good about what they're doing. Of course they love to celebrate it and treat their godlessness as a virtue. What would we expect them to do? They're not like us, folks. And I'm not suggesting for a moment we are better than they are. I'm just stating that we are different than they are. Dead people don't feel. And the Bible is very clear that dead sinners are able to conduct themselves in contradiction to God and not be bothered by it because it isn't until God works to convict them. Go back through the passages that we've just read. Acts chapter 2. Here's what's happened. You with your wicked hands have slain and crucified Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said, what do we do? But if they're not convicted by the Holy Spirit, what they say is, leave me alone. So what is sin? It is an offense. And every sin, folks, no matter how long ago it was committed, no matter how much it has been forgotten by the one who commits it, God never does forget it. And it never does slip through the cracks or get swept under the rug Or get put into this doesn't matter pile. It just keeps piling up and building. And the anger of God builds in conjunction with it. Until the day of judgment and the day of wrath. 
So that what we find, folks, from a human standpoint is that our situation is almost impossible. This is my nature. This is my nature. I can no more be long-term God and my own power than a dog can, by decree of his will, walk on two legs and eat with a fork. And God knows everything and he forgets nothing. And he is righteous. He cannot, he cannot, it is not in his nature, ignore, pass over, pretend to be indifferent to, nod his head and wink his eye at human transgression. And yet because we are by nature sinful, we have no remedy to bring. It is not in us to fix ourselves. It is a power outside of us. And so folks, to go back to Acts chapter 5, Peter goes from the guilt of our sin to the gift of our Savior. Who can help us? The one who will condemn us. And we'll get to this in a couple of weeks in Sunday school, but I just have found it mercifully fascinating the way God talked to Cain. When Cain brought his offering and his offering wasn't acceptable, God said to Cain, now here's what you need to do. Let me help you here. Here's what you need to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you some good advice. Here's what you need to do. But of course, Cain would have none of it. And so God could not help him, but judged him instead. God gave to us Christ. Verse number 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Our guilt, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah for that, by the way, whom God hath given to they to them that obey him. Now again, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached that, the people were pricked in their heart and they said, what shall we do? And here, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and said, how are we going to kill these guys? Let's talk about the gift of our Savior. Go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, briefly. Who is this Jesus, the gift of a Savior? Acts chapter 2, verse number 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. A man approved of God among you by miracles, signs, and miracles, wonders, and signs. 
He was a man whom God approved. A man. He was a man. And again, folks, I know that I'm preaching to people who know this and believe this, but let us not be so focused upon Jesus as God that we lose sight of the fact that our Savior was also a man, a human being. Real flesh and blood. He was, verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He was a man approved by God, crucified by men. Verse number 24, raised by God, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. In verses 25 through 35, which I will not read, Peter walks us through a lengthy exposition of how he is both predicted by David and contrasted with David. That although David was writing about him, David was not writing about himself, he was writing about the Messiah. Bringing us then to this conclusion in verse number 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Master and the Messiah. And that language is echoed, folks, in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 31, in which he is called a prince and a savior. He is a leader. That's what the word prince refers to. He is the prince. He is our leader. And he is our savior. And what this does, folks, and the reason that God has done it this way, is to magnify his own wisdom. To bring salvation to humanity through humanity, but not to bring salvation to humanity through sinful humanity. Because, folks, our nature is such that if we could find one shred of reason to credit ourselves for our salvation, that is what we would do. That is exactly what we would do. And so we see always in the gospel message that what God did was raise up Jesus, his man, who was crucified by sinful men for their own reasons and purposes. And God did that so that he might condemn that man. Jesus was, folks, we know this. He himself became the criminal. And that, by the way, folks, do we understand this? That is not a false accusation that is leveled at him. It is not a false accusation that he is a criminal. They crucified him because they called him a criminal, but he wasn't really a criminal. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. They crucified him because he was a criminal, and God killed him because he was a criminal. He was a criminal against God. He became sin. And in this way, folks, God could 
justifiably kill his son for the punishment and guilt of all human sins and then forgive people who trusted that. It's what Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 3 to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that God in saving us would not in any way be tainted and be the justifier, be the one who makes us righteous. Romans 3.26, who believe in Jesus, the wisdom of God magnifies our salvation. Peter talks about the guilt of our sin and the gift of our Savior to the magnification of the mercy of God. What does God want to put on display? His glorious attributes. His generous mercy. Look again, if you would please, at verse number 30 of Acts chapter 5. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. You killed him. You nailed him to the cross. God raised him from the dead. Him, verse 31, hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince, a leader, and a savior, a deliverer, for to give repentance to Israel. What is it? Paul talks about this. What is it that takes us from unbelief to belief? And some of you study the subject and you know that the, that the simplest definition of repentance is to change one's mind. But what causes us to change our mind? Here am I, right? Here am I. I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm getting... I'm, newly married, I have a job, I'm trying to figure out how to make as much money as I can make. We have friends, we're having a good time. We are not, by any measurement of the world, wicked people. We are not drunkards, we are not adulterers, we are not drug users. And here comes the gospel. What caused me to change my mind? That is the gift of God. That is what Ephesians means when it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, not of yourselves. Where did the faith come from? It is God's gift. It is God's gift. And God gave to Israel repentance. Here is the gift. And God gave to them forgiveness. God did that for them. In Acts chapter 26 and verse number 18, God will describe Paul's ministry as proclaiming a gospel that will turn men from darkness to light. It is all mercy, folks. It is all mercy. And he did this by nailing every sin to his cross. This is what Colossians 2 teaches. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And the testimony, folks, to go back to Acts chapter 5, the testimony that we are forgiven is that God gives us his spirit. 
Now, finally. Now, finally. We're at a place to be in an intimate relationship with the Lord. We are forgiven. We've already read this. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What will happen? You, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 10.43, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whatsoever, whosoever believeth in him shall receive the remission of sins. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. Or 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. So when God forgives a man, folks, that forgiveness is real. Because it was forgiven by Christ. And the consequences are real. We enter into true union with him. The spirit is given to us as believers. Let me just make, as I try to to wind this down, let me make several applications to us. You... Because this is true of every individual human being. You are commanded. Not simply invited. You are commanded. To repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30 The times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. This is God's command. That all men are to turn away from their unbelief, their disobedience, their delight in sin, their love of darkness, and to turn to the Lord. It's a command. Secondly, when we do that, we should understand that having our sins forgiven is a blessing that we cannot ignore. That this should not be ho-hum to us. As if being a believer in Jesus Christ had substantially little difference from being a fan of our favorite athletic team. Romans 4, 6, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, salvation by grace alone saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Again, folks, when the disciples, right, when the disciples rejoiced that they could boss around demons, Jesus said, that's nothing. Right? If you really want to celebrate something, celebrate this. Your names are written in heaven. And finally, folks, genuine forgiveness of another human being is possible and for us who are saved more than possible mandatory because of the forgiveness that we have received. We will 
We will deal with the passage at length, but you're familiar with it. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. My willingness, unwillingness to be forgiving right, is a reflection of my lack of comprehension that I have been forgiven. But that is exactly where the Bible puts me. Let's pray. Father, I pray.